0: Oh, you've likely heard the phrase, life is a marathon, not a sprint, right? Many of you probably have heard that. In my world, as a pastor, there's a, there's a lot of talk that discipleship is a marathon, not a sprint. Whatever you're into, whatever area of life you're into, you could probably use that phrase. It's a marathon, not a sprint, to tell yourself to slow down, take it easy, loosen some expectations. Well, I've been understanding this phrase more and more, recently. I ran two marathons in the last two weeks. I don't know why, but I did. So I ran the Twin Cities Marathon a couple, two weeks ago, and I came short by my goal time by ten minutes. So I found out from a friend that Mankato has a marathon, yesterday, and I thought, hey, maybe I can run that marathon and beat my goal time. Since I came 10 minutes short, let's take another crack at it. And so um, I've run two marathons the last two weeks, and I'm beginning to understand what it means that life is a marathon, not a sprint. Discipleship is a marathon, not a sprint. And what I learned, so um, what I learned is that it's a lot easier to, to run a marathon and to finish a marathon if you do it with people. And so the Twin Cities Marathon, there's, there's so many people out cheering you on. Um, the entire way, 26.2 miles, there's people saying, you can do this, keep going. Amazing signs that encourage you all along the way. But I also ran that marathon with my brother-in-law, Seth. Step and step, we ran the entire thing together. And yes, we came up 10 minutes short of our goal time, but but thinking, well, let me give another crack at it, I, I decided to do yesterday's marathon in Mankato, but Seth was out of town, so I had to run the marathon alone. And I'm kind of the type that I'm like, I like people, I'm like 50% introvert, 50% extrovert, and I thought, maybe running by myself with my music, kind of getting in my zone, maybe Seth was the problem. Maybe he's why I was 10 minutes slower than I wanted to be, and so let's ditch Seth, and I'm going to give this another try. Well, it turns out that without Seth, I'm 19 minutes slower. So rather than missing my goal time by 10 minutes, I missed it by 30 minutes. Mankato is a beautiful city. I love the people who are out out cheering me on, but there were far fewer people than the Twin Cities Marathon, and I didn't have Seth with me lock and step. And it was harder I did have a friend, John Hayes came down with me and he ran a half marathon while I ran the marathon and, and I got to mile 21 and I texted John and I said, I think I'm, I'm done. I, I was just done, I was over it. Mankato is beautiful but very hilly and it was hard and I was running alone and, and he said, you got this man, five more miles, just keep going forward. And what I've learned in, in running these last couple marathons is that Nourishment is extremely important. Like you have to continually nourish yourself on the run. You have to replenish. You have to take energy chews and drink water and keep nourishing yourself. You also need encouragement. You need people like Seth, who I was running with two weeks ago, saying, We got this, let's keep going. I need people like John to text me when he's a couple miles away to say, Hey man, five more miles. You make it two miles, I'll make it two, or you make it two and a half miles, I'll make it two and a half miles, and I'll finish the marathon with you. You can do this. And so I, I, I finished, but I needed nourishment, I needed encouragement, and I simply just needed to keep moving forward. And that, that's true for a marathon, but that's also true for life. Any area of life, but then specifically discipleship, as we talk about walking with Jesus this fall. You and I, we need nourishment from God's word. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings. That's why you gather in community groups. That's why we open this thing and talk about this together. We need nourishment from God's word. We need encouragement from one another, and we simply need to keep moving forward. I can't tell you how much I just wanted to stop yesterday. It was awful. I've done three marathons in my life, this was the worst. But people were there to encourage me. I had my nourishment with me, and I just decided at one point, I'm going I'm to keep moving forward. And as you and I walk with Jesus, we just need to keep moving forward. There's seasons of life where, where we want to stop, we want to give up, we want to throw in the towel. And between nourishment from God's word and encouragement from other brothers and sisters in the Lord and this results, so I'm just going to keep going forward, even if I'm slowing down, maybe I'm speeding up. You go through different seasons and running a marathon. Sometimes you're feeling great, you're going quicker, and other times you're feeling terrible and you want to give up. And this is like the life of a disciple, walking with Jesus. It requires us to just keep moving forward. And so this fall, we've been looking at different disciples from the scriptures, talking about how they walked with Jesus, trying to receive nourishment from God's word and encouragement from people who lived 2,000 years ago, learning how they walked with Jesus, that you and I might, might be encouraged to keep walking with Jesus ourselves, and to simply keep moving forward in this adventure of following Jesus. And so we've been looking at different disciples the past couple weeks. or Right now we're in the middle of kind of a three-week series in this series, so like a mini-series within a series. And the theme, the big idea for these couple weeks here is that disciples walk with Jesus by loving one another, loving neighbors, and loving enemies. Disciples walk with Jesus by loving one another, loving neighbors, loving enemies. Three weeks we're looking at this. Last week we looked at what it means for disciples to love one another, that it starts there, that we have to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, that if we truly take Jesus' words to heart and try to apply what he taught us, we have to love one another. That's Jesus' expectation on his followers, his disciples, his apprentices. But also we have to love our neighbors, and then we have to love our enemies, and these are three different categories of people. And Jesus expects us to love these three different categories of people. And so today we're going to zero in on what it means to love our neighbor. Practically, what does that look like? And to do so, I want to start by just doing a very quick overview of the Apostle John. The disciple John. And see what... What may have gone into his learning to love his neighbors? And so I just want to let you know, flip over to Mark chapter 3, verse 17. Get your Bible open, have it on your lap or on your phone, and flip around with me to the different passages this morning as we talk about what it means to love neighbor. But let's start by looking at John and considering what went into his transformation. So in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is calling the, the 12 apostles to himself. In this discipleship series, we're looking at many different disciples and not just the 12 apostles, but I want to consider John a little bit this morning as we get going. So Jesus calls John as one of his disciples, but then also one of the 12 apostles. And in, John, uh, in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, it says, this is a list of the 12 apostles that Jesus is calling to himself. And in 17, it says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To whom he gave the name Bonangarius, that is, Sons of Thunder. What an incredible nickname, huh? Sons of Thunder. How many of you want to be a son or a daughter of thunder? Well, it, it actually didn't mean a good thing. It meant that John was kind of like many of the disciples. He was kind of brash. He was kind of quick with his mouth. He, he, he had this propensity to judge others and to think that he could do things himself. Like, this is John's origin. He's a fisherman by trade. And so he's, he, he's, he's kind of rough around the edges. He's a blue-collar worker. He's a son of thunder. Thunder. What, what exactly does this mean? Well, I think we get an indication here if you flip over to Luke chapter 9. Flip over to Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 49. I'm going to look at a few verses here and get a greater idea of who John is. To be a son of thunder for John meant that he was a judgmental hater of his neighbor. Listen to how he's described here, or how, he's not described, he just shows his true colors to us here. In Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 49. John answered, John, the son of thunder, the disciple of Jesus, one of the 12 apostles, he answered, "Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. He's not among our tribe. He shouldn't, he shouldn't be doing the things that we're doing. We're, we're your disciples, Jesus. We're in the in crowd. We've, we've got our ducks in a row. We've got our theology right. We've got the right rabbi. We are, we are, we are a holy huddle. And we saw this guy doing things, and we, we think it's hypocritical, and, it, and we try to stop him because he does not follow us. And Jesus said, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. He just notice that about John. Like, we saw somebody doing good works, but he's not doing it with us. And so there's some competition here, son of thunder, some, some judgment. Keep going, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is speaking about Jesus. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them, and they went on to another village. What a funny story, right? It just ends like, they went on to another village. Okay! John, this judgmental neighbor hater. There, there was this rift between the Jews and the Samaritans. Samaritans were like half-breed Jews. They had they had like inter intermingled and intermarried and had kids with other nations and other pagan worshippers, and so they had some Jewish roots and some Jewish. Jewish ethnicity, but they had mixed with that some other ethnicities and some other pagan worship. And so pure-blood Jews who worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone and who found a lot of pride in being pure-blood Jewish, they had this disdain and hatred for the Samaritans. And so Jesus was often walking through, walking his disciples through Samaria, teaching them that we got to love people who you by nature don't love, and your religious tradition has taught you not to love, and so Jesus is trying to teach his disciples something, and here they come through a Samaritan village, and the village doesn't receive him. They're like, you're a Jew, you're a rabbi, you're going to Jerusalem. We don't exactly know why they didn't receive him other than it says his face was set on Jerusalem like Jesus was going to be crucified in Jerusalem. They didn't want any part of it. They weren't sure who this Jesus was. Um, And look at John's response. Should we tell fire to come down and consume them? That's the response of one of Jesus's closest disciples. In fact, John wasn't just one of the 12, he was in the inner three. And throughout the scriptures, John becomes known as the apostle of love. If you read the gospel of John, we don't have time to read the whole gospel of John this morning, but as you read the gospel of John, notice how much John, the writer of this gospel, uses the word love. And then if you read 1 John, which was authored by John, the same John, the son of thunder John, the judgmental neighbor hater John. He has been transformed from the son of thunder to the apostle of love. He has been transformed from saying, God, should we tell fire to come down and burn this Samaritan village? Those half-breeds who don't truly worship you? Let's, let, let, let's show them some discipline. Let's show them some punishment. Let's call some fire down. He, he's gone from that mindset to be known as the apostle of love. What could have caused this transformation? Jesus, right? You know the answer. What what I want to do now is I want to look at just over on the other page here in Luke chapter 10, we have a very familiar passage, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I think it's unique and important here that in Luke chapter 9, the author of Luke records that John had just wanted to Burn the Samaritan village. And then in the next chapter, Jesus gives this parable, this story about the Good Samaritan. I think John's transformation from being a son of thunder, a judgmental neighbor hater, to the apostle of love, the one who wrote more about love in the New Testament than anyone else, the one who records Jesus' teaching and specifically puts into those teachings this element of love, and then his own letters just contain this this heart of love for people. I think what transformed John was both Jesus' teaching and then Jesus' life and death and resurrection, right? Right? I mean, that's what transforms any one of us. Jesus is teaching his life, his death, and his resurrection. But I want to specifically look at Jesus' teaching about the Good Samaritan to see how this transforms disciples of Jesus from being by nature an impulse judgmental neighbor haters. And you may think the word hatred is too strong. Like, I don't hate people. But Jesus, we looked at this last week, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says, even if you call somebody a fool... If you settle in your heart that you're opposed to a different person because of whatever, maybe their race, their ethnicity, their, their style of life, their politics, their whatever it is, fill in the blank, if you position yourself as opposed to somebody else, Jesus says that's the same as hatred. That's what John was doing here. He, he has this hatred in his heart, this judgment in his heart towards the Samaritans. And he goes from that to being a lover of neighbor and somebody who taught us to love neighbor and so what is it here in this passage that helps us to love neighbor how are we transformed so we're going to look at um, the parable of the good samaritan flip there it's just on the next page luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37 i'm going to have you stand as i read this passage now that i'm done with my 20 minute introduction He said, the one who showed mercy, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Lord Jesus, may you help us to understand more and more of your heart of love and compassion for us, for our neighbors, and for our enemies, and may you transform us through your teaching, through your life, through your death, through your resurrection, and the gift of your spirit to love neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. I want to make three observations about this text and how it's transformative to our becoming people who actually love neighbor. The first one is that love is the path to and proof, proof of eternal life. Look at verses 25 through 28 again. This lawyer, and, and it's not lawyer the way that we think about lawyer, like standing in a courtroom. It's a, it's a lawyer. He's a student of the law of the Old Testament law. He's a religious expert in the Torah, in the Old Testament law. And so he's asking Jesus, who's a rabbi, and there's people like debating if Jesus is a rabbi or not because he's not of of like the religious establishment. He's kind of one of those rabbis that like didn't go to seminary, doesn't have a denomination, he doesn't quite fit into any camps, and people are like, I'm not quite sure if we trust this guy as a rabbi. Like he doesn't have all of the backing of our other rabbis. And so this lawyer, this, this expert in the law says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I think maybe the question's legitimate, or maybe he's trying to test Jesus in the same way that he's trying to justify himself, as it tells us in verse 29. We don't, we don't really know. But Jesus, as he always does, it puts the question back on him. Well, what do you think? You're an expert in the law. You're a lawyer. What do you do to in- inherit eternal life? And he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And verse 28 tells us that he's correct. Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Love is the path to and proof of eternal life. We, we have to keep that in mind as followers of Jesus, that love is the essential element. It is the essential doctrine of the church Of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we we make other doctrines, we make other things more important. Jesus is teaching, and and he says this in Matthew chapter 22, he says, all of the law and the prophets are summarized by this, love God, love neighbor as self. Love God, love neighbor as self. Love is the path to eternal life. It's God's love for us displayed in his son, Jesus Christ. That's how we come into eternal life with God, through God's love for us, sending his one and only son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, die a sinner's death, and overcome sin and death in the grave. You and I enter the kingdom of God because of God's love for us. That's it. Nothing that you, can, nothing that you do, nor, no morality, no like spiritual devotion, no religious duty, grants you eternal life. It's God's love for you as you receive that expressed through Jesus. It's also the proof of eternal life. So if you've received eternal life from God, if you've received God's love, this love will flow out of us. The only proof that you are a follower of Jesus is that you are growing in love. That you keep walking forward in love. That, that, that you grow in loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. That you grow in loving your neighbors. And that you grow in loving your enemies. I don't, I don't know what else to tell you other than the New Testament makes it clear over and over and over again that the only measure of our salvation, the only assurance of our salvation, and the mark of spiritual maturity is love. It, that's the clear teaching of the entire New Testament that the path to eternal life is the love of God and that the proof of eternal life or the way that you will get assurance of your salvation is if you keep walking in love and keep growing in love and keep striving to love others. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Verse 28, do this and you will live. Love God, love neighbor. Again, I I mentioned this last week, so I'm not going to go into it more this week. Other than to just point out, he says, love neighbor as yourself. So as you love God, you need to learn to understand how much God loves you. You actually need to learn to have some self-love, understanding that, that God loved me enough that he sent his son to die for me, that God doesn't want to whitewash my personality. He doesn't want to wipe me clean and make me different. He wants to transform me and make me new. He wants, he, he, he wants to sanctify me, but God sanctifies me. God sanctifies Andrew. And so the best thing that I can do in loving God and loving others is to be who God's created me to be for his glory, for their good and the advancement of his gospel, not to try to be like somebody else. Jesus consistently teaches, love God, love neighbor as yourself, as yourself, as yourself. And so there is some element of self-love that I think the church needs to come back to and embrace who has God created me to be and wired me to be. But it's not for self-edification, actually, as we begin to understand ourselves and our relationship with God and how God created us and how God wired us, I can better love my neighbor. I can, let's start with brothers and sisters, right? Because disciples walk with Jesus by loving one another and then loving neighbor and then loving enemy. I can better love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I can better love my neighbors and I can better love my enemies when I understand who I am and how I am and whose I am, that God has created me, that God has redeemed me, that God wants to use me to love other people, and so Jesus here is saying the clear teaching of Scripture to summarize all of the law, the lawyers, expert in the Old Testament law. He says, how, how do you read it? Well, it's to love God and to love neighbor as self. He says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's the path to eternal life. The second observation from this text is that neighbor is defined by proximity, not affinity. So Jesus goes into this parable, Right? Verse 29, he says, But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? I think you should pause and let that verse sink in for a while. How often we try to justify our actions or our inactions. I can't tell you how true this is for me. I'm a pastor, right? People expect pastors to be awesome or to be spiritual. Maybe not awesome, I don't know. And if I'm honest with you, I can't tell you how often I just try to justify myself. Justify the way that I see the world, the perspectives that I have, the opinions that I have, the experiences that I have. I can't tell you how often I'm I'm guilty of being like a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a lawyer. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? It's like, well, if I love God and love neighbor, that gets me eternal life. That sounds daunting. So, who is my neighbor? Let's define it. And and in this in this culture and in this lawyer's perspective and in the Jewish tradition, neighbor was fellow Jew. Neighbor was his fellow Jew. And so he's thinking, like, Jesus' answer is going to be, well, your fellow Jew, your brother and sister in Yahweh, right? So this statement here, disciples walk with Jesus by loving one another. Yes, we need to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to love the family of God. It starts there. Well, it starts with loving God, loving yourself, and loving your brother and sister in Christ. If you can't do that, you're not going to love neighbor or enemy. starts there, but, but then he, he, he's saying, he, this lawyer is expecting Jesus to say, "You're fellow Jew," and he's like, "Okay, good. That's easy. We have the same, we have the same Torah. We have the same law. We have the same cultural expressions. We we do life in a similar manner. We we interpret the world the same way. We believe that Yahweh is creator of heaven and earth. We believe that His law should be followed. I I, I can love my neighbor if my neighbor is like me, right? I mean, that that's part of what we do, right? Like. We move into communities and neighborhoods and find churches where people are like us. They think like us. They act like us. They respond like us. Oftentimes, this is, this is something in the human heart that we're drawn to people who have an affinity, who we have an affinity for or we have something in common with. Some churches even, they build their church on affinity groups. And there's, I'm, I'm not saying there's never a time and a place to have connections with people who like things that you like and do things that you do, right? You should have some friends who enjoy the same hobbies that you have. But Jesus here is defining neighbor not by affinity, not by affinity, people who have the same religion as us, people who have the same perspective as us, people who have the same idols as us. He's saying neighbor is defined by proximity, it's whoever you end up coming in contact with, whether that's your physical neighbor, whether that's a coworker, whether that's somebody that God has put into your path. And Jesus explains this. Look, pick it up again in verse 29. So remember, the lawyer's trying to justify himself. He's trying to get a lower definition of who neighbor is. He doesn't really want to be challenged by a loving neighbor. He wants loving neighbor to be easy. Can you blame him? Don't we all? Jesus doesn't give him that, though. Look at verse 30. He says, Jesus replied, a young man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 20-mile trip. It's down this steep mountain. There's a rocky path. And it was known, this, this trip was known for being a risky journey. Like, if you're a white suburbanite, it's the equivalent of going into North Minneapolis. And if you're from North Minneapolis, a black man from North Minneapolis, it's like going out to the suburbs, right? Different perspective. We need, we need to keep in mind, like, rabbit trail, I'm not going to go there. And just keep in mind, this, this is a risky journey. And depending on your background, your color, your context, something that feels safe to you may feel very dangerous to somebody else and vice versa. So regardless, Jesus is setting up the story. Here's, Here's a risky journey that's about to happen. This man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. Not uncommon. That's what you would expect if somebody was traveling alone on this path. These robbers stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A priest, the holy man of God. Passed by. There's a mess. There's a man beaten. There's a man half dead if not dead. And, and a priest by Old Testament law was not allowed to touch a dead corpse or he would be unclean. And so the priest is, is putting on his religious hat here, and he's saying, Well, according to the religious law, I can't touch a dead corpse. I'm not sure if this guy is dead or not. He looks sick. I don't and I've got duties to do at the at the temple. I'm a priest. I've got important things to do. I gotta go teach people, I've got God, I'm gonna keep going. Priest walks by. Verse 32. So likewise a Levite. Well, priests are all in the line of Levi. A priest would be a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. Jesus here is, is some somehow he's drawing on like. The priest, the pastor, the holy man, and then also the, the line of Levi, like the people of God, who are supposed to be the most pious, righteous, religious people. So likewise, Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side again. Here's this mess of a problem. I don't know what happened. I've got more important things to do. I've got to get to temple. A Levi often was an assistant in the temple, a helper of the priest. When he came to the place, he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. Remember the animosity between Jews and Samaritans. Remember remember John's impulse. Jesus, should we burn this Samaritan village? They're they're half-breeds. They're not pure blood. they, they They don't worship Yahweh the right way. They've intermingled their faith with these other religions. Jesus says, but a Samaritan, and hearing this story, they think, surely not the Samaritan. They're worthless. They don't help anyone. They only care for themselves. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had Compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave that to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Remember, the, the, the question here is Who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, neighbor is not somebody that you have an affinity for. Neighbor is somebody that you are proximate with. Somebody in your proximity, whether that is a physical neighbor, whether that's a coworker, whether that's somebody that you chose to be in a relationship with. I mean, that's oftentimes affinity. Or somebody that God has just put in your path. Maybe it's for a moment. Maybe it's for a moment in time. Maybe it's for an extended moment of time, but we don't have the luxury of defining who we love. We love neighbors based off of people that are easy to love or that we want to love or that we do life similar to or they have the same perspectives or outlooks or they vote the same way or they they interpret scripture the same way. That's not an option for followers of Jesus. Jesus is teaching us that his followers, his disciples, they love neighbor and neighbor is defined by whoever you come in contact with who has needs which, by the way, is everybody. The needs may look different based off situation, life stage, whatever, but Jesus here is saying, no, 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 my followers, they, they get proximate to people. They get close to people. They, they take off their religious hat and, and, and they don't say, well, I'm too busy doing God's work to help this man or this woman. They say, no, that is God's work to help people in Need, neighbor is defined by proximity. William Barclay, in his um, commentary on this passage, he says, with their passions for definitions, the rabbis or lawyers, that's who's in the story here, right? They sought to define who a man's neighbor was. And at their worst and most narrowest, they confined the word neighbor to mean Jew. And then he says, it's no new experience to find the Orthodox more interested in dogmas and definitions than in helping their fellow man. Isn't that what we need to be careful for? Like, well, let's define terms. Let's define this. Let's define that. Let's let 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 let's. mm, Do we really help this person if they're in that situation because of their own doing? Or uh, that person's really not my neighbor. I don't. Jesus say, no. Your neighbor is whoever you're proximate with. And so, keep that in mind. As I probably shouldn't go here. Another rabbit trail. But our world has just gotten so expanded, right? You can reach into your front right pocket, pull out your phone, and you can hear about atrocities, and you can hear about people being beaten on the side of the road all around the world. And we should care, that should break our hearts. But your call, your responsibility is to love neighbor, those that you're in proximate relationship to. And so maybe sometimes you should wonder, you should worry less about what's happening around the world and you should worry more about what's happening on your neighborhood, in your street, in your home, in your place of work, in your spheres of, I'm not even going to say influence, spheres of relationship. Because God has put you there for a reason, to be his hands and feet, to love neighbor. Neighbor is defined by proximity. And so I would encourage you this week, who has God put me in a relationship with? Who is in, my, who is in my orbit? Or better yet, who am I in their orbit? Who do I have in my sphere of relationship? And what would it look like for me to love Neighbor. Third observation from this text is that love is compassion that leads to action. Look at verse 33 again. So Jesus blows all their minds by saying, actually the Samaritan is the guy who loves a neighbor, not the religiously pious, not the priest, not the Levite, the Samaritan and all the disciples hearing this are like, what? No, you're supposed to pat our backs, give us the massage, give us the religious, puff us up religiously. And you're saying the Samaritan does a better job of loving God and neighbor than us? And Jesus is saying, yeah, often it's like that. And then verse 33 says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Love for neighbor, love for other, is compassion that leads to action. Notice here, Jesus doesn't say he just, he just had sympathy. Oh, I'm sorry, this guy's hurt. Looks like he got beat up. I got places to be. I'm going to go on. I'm going to pray for him as I walk to the temple. No, compassion is this deep internal thing that leads us to have to act. You know what it is. You've all been in a situation where you see something and you're like, I, I can't ignore it. I have to get my hands dirty. I have to get involved. I have to use my own, as the Samaritan does, uses his own money, his own time. He inconveniences himself to love neighbor. And remember, this guy wasn't his neighbor as the way that we often think about it because of affinity. It was just proximity. I walked by. I saw this situation. Compassion is going to lead me to action. He didn't spend his time trying to him and ha about why the guy was beaten there on the road, right? Well, he was making this journey alone. Anybody knows you shouldn't make this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho alone. Like, of course you're going to get beat up. Like, sorry dude, you put yourself in harm's way. You should have been smarter. You should have had some traveling companions. You got what you deserved. No. How often do we, like the lawyer, try and justify ourselves? Well, they got what they deserve. They got what was coming to them. It's not my problem, so I can't inconvenience myself with with being the solution. I would have been smart enough to travel with a companion. No, love for a neighbor is just simple compassion that leads to action. In summarizing the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, that comes from the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5 and 6. And then love your neighbor as yourself, that comes from Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 18. Write, write down Leviticus 19, 9 through 18, and go read that this afternoon, and just reflect on what it looks like to love neighbor. Write down Leviticus 19, 9 through 18, and go read that later on. But right now, I just I kind of want to wrap this all together And just, I want to give you a couple examples to encourage you. Because every time that we gather, I think there's probably two things that need to happen. There needs to be some conviction because we fall short. Right? Like, we oftentimes identify with the lawyer trying to justify himself. Or we identify with John, the judgmental neighbor hater. Or we identify with the priest who passed by or the lazy Levite who didn't help. And so I think there ought to be some conviction when we read Scripture, but I think there should also be some encouragement because disciples walk with Jesus in the highs and in the lows, and we simply keep moving forward. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Sometimes you're doing well, other times you're struggling. And so let me leave you with a little bit of encouragement this morning of how I see our church-loving neighbor. Anna Shurek, one one of our members who recently sold her house, and moved to Paradise, California to help rebuild that community after it was burnt down by a wildfire two years ago. She made herself proximate to that community so that she could love that community. She's living in a, in a trailer right now. She, sold, she had a home in St. Louis Park, sold it. She's now living in a trailer to love that community, to make that community proximate to her, to, to put herself in their proximity to help and to love. We have a group of people in our church who a few weeks ago picked up a, from the airport a refugee who they had no prior relationship with or knowledge of. They picked him up at the airport, brought him to their house, and he lived with them for a week. As arrived in Minnesota, helped him find a more permanent place. That's a loving neighbor. Proximate. When, when somebody comes from a different country, fleeing persecution, and ends up in the Twin Cities? They're not our enemy, they're our neighbor. And even if they are our enemy, we we're supposed to love them, right? But they're not our enemy, they're our neighbor. There's a group of ladies in our church who every Friday, they go to Peter Hobart Elementary School a few blocks down the road and put food into people's backpacks. Kids who go home without food on the weekends. It's love for neighbor. Keep doing it, Church. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. It's an amazing picture of God's love. Many of you every day are striving to grow in loving neighbor in simple, meaningful, significant ways. Keep doing it. And Jesus, he's the ultimate example of a loving neighbor, right? If love is compassion that leads to action, let's consider Jesus' compassion for you and I that led him to action. Jesus left his posh dwelling in heaven and moved into our ghetto in order to walk among us, to suffer with us and to die for us. When the world tells you to to leave dangerous situations, to leave communities or or groups or peoples or churches that don't quite look like you, the affinity isn't quite there, like why don't we just why don't we just abandon it all and go go surround ourselves with people that are like us? that think like me, that act like me, that that have the same ideals that I have, remember that Jesus left his heavenly home, this posh heavenly dwelling, to walk among us. That's love in action. That's compassion that led to action. As we transition to communion this morning, I want to keep in mind that we're called to imitate the Good Samaritan by loving our neighbors, but we all know how hard it is, right? So I want to remind us of the gospel that we're saved by Jesus' work, not our own. We're transformed to imitate his work and to to live it out, but we're saved by what he has done, not by what we do. I mean, Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. As you read and reread the parable of the Good Samaritan, remember that Jesus is the Good Samaritan, not you. He's calling us to be like him. But he's the good Samaritan. You and I, we tend to feel like the man beaten on the side of the road. We tend to identify with judge, the judge John, the judgmental neighbor hater, wanting to burn the city. We tend to identify with the pious priest who passed by the situation or the lazy Levite who looks the other way. But it's precisely here, in our John-like judgment, when we're laying beaten on the road, when we're pious, passing by a situation, when we're lazy looking the other way, that Jesus meets us, he walks with us, he lives the perfect life that we're incapable of living, he dies the sacrificial death that you and I deserved, and he overcame sin and death in the grave so that we can live new lives of love. Amen. I'm going to pray, and then the worship team is going to come up and lead us just in a song of repentance and reflection and lament. And as they do, there's a communion packet in the pew in front of you. And just spend some time praising Jesus for who he is, that he's the ultimate good Samaritan, that he shows us the example of how to love neighbor, and then ask him to continue to transform you to be a better lover of your neighbor. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. I thank you that you meet us in our judgment, that you meet us when we're beaten, that you meet us when we're pious, that you meet us when we're lazy, that you walk with us, and that you sometimes gently and other times more aggressively try to confront us and encourage us. Thank you for living the life that we're incapable of living, dying the death that we deserve, overcoming sin and death in the grave so that we can live new lives of love. We take communion this morning to remember who you are and what you've done in our place.